Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Hello again, this is G. Mark Hardy here with Ross Young for another episode of CISO Tradecraft. As you know, we try to bring for you, the security professionals, some topics that you'll find useful at work and help you in your professional development. This week, we're pleased to explore the Essential 8 Maturity Model. I said, what's that? Well, it's from the Australian Cybersecurity Center. And they prioritize mitigation strategies in terms of ways to organize our response to different cyber threats. What you'll find as we go through this is that Ross and I will discuss this and give you some ideas of how you might implement that. Now, what if you're not in Australia? Don't worry about it. But what, what it, the point is, these are industry best practices they work, they apply at different levels of maturity, and you can look at this today in your own organization to decide how can I improve our security posture right now. That's exactly right. So what I love about this is, as you know, in, in the cybersecurity industry, there are thousands of controls you can do, but how do we really focus on the ones that are going to safeguard the company? And the Australians came out a list with a list of eight controls that anyone can apply, which do more to protect your company than any of the others that they found. And they, they organize these a little bit. So they have one through four, which they talk about as preventing malware in your environment. And so those four are application controls, patching applications, configuring Microsoft Office macro settings and user application hardening. So let's dive into the first one a little bit. Application control. What is, what is application control? It's the ability to prevent execution of malicious programs within your environment. And, and if you think about it, nobody wants malware in their environment, right? So we need to make sure all non-approved applications are prevented from executing in our environment. Otherwise, it's just malware and virus every day, and, and that's not a good thing. So, Gmark, if we really want to focus on having good application controls, what might be a playbook for how we could transform an organization and build out that functionality? Well, Ross, when you think about it, if you want to control what's being run, there's a couple of ways we could look at it. There's technology out there that is called application whitelisting. And that's not really what we're looking at. We're not looking at something that's going to uh, block uh, different things with a third-party tool. Uh, but the question is, how do we go ahead and restrict execution of executables to an approved set on endpoints? And what that's going to involve is being able to identify what is it that we, well, what is it that we want to allow? Uh, do we want to be able to say, hey, uh, users can run any PowerShell script they like, or do we want to restrict that? Do we allow users to go ahead and operate at the um, uh, you know, different libraries or scripts, uh, or can those be controlled? Or are we able to go ahead and pretty much lock everything down using, for example, Microsoft's block rules to, to prevent bypasses of application controls? Uh, essentially, what we're looking at then 
is that if you have an application that is not approved or used incorrectly, that could be an element of an attacker's strategy. And so uh, we ought to know what people are doing. One of the things that we do is that we do not allow users to install random applications. Anything that requires admin privilege, we don't allow users admin privilege. Uh, and then that gets around a lot of that right there. Yeah, I, I like this. You know, there's that privileged access management piece that you talked about of of allowing people to install things which can execute, but also a, another focus might be on code signing. Do we know where this application came from, right? Because if we know where it came from, we can say, hey, this was built internally or this is externally. And if it's externally, then we need to have a little bit closer look at it to say, well, do we trust the source of this or is this something that, you know, could be malicious, right? Yeah. And, and so think about doing a business inventory. And again, one of the things that CISOs need to understand and remember is that we are empowered to enable the business to accomplish the mission securely. We're not here to block the mission to prevent the organization from achieving its business goals. And so early on, when you're told never be the person who says no, always be the person who says how, this is one of those opportunities to sit down with your user base with the executive team and say, what is it that we really want to accomplish in terms of the day-to-day -day activity? Do we have anything that needs to be done that uh, requires this app and the like? Okay. Gotcha. So I, I think those are really key and it's going to help us, you know, move application controls in the right way to prevent malware in our environment. We also really want to look at the second area, which is patching applications. And so we can just think of technologies that should not be in our environment. So for example, Flash largely died off last year and is no longer supported. But do you have flash in your environment? You know, are flash you running long live flash? It's, 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 it's tough getting rid of it. Yeah. Web browsers. Who's not running the latest web browser in your environment. And if you're not, well, are you open to vulnerable attacks in Chrome and in internet Explorer? You know, office is the same way, making sure that there's no malicious attachments uh, that can easily be fixed by having a new version of that. So when we start thinking about patching computers, we need to think about timelines. And the Australians say, if there's a extreme risk vulnerability, let's say this is a wormable attack, mm -hmm. then you need to patch within 48 hours. Now, I'll also provide a little bit of context that the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, issued a directive for all federal agencies within the US government. And they said, if you have an internet-facing application, you have 15 days to patch critical vulns and 30 days to patch high vulns. So that's just a, a good best practice. You know, every organization is a little bit unique. You need to understand your, your controls that would help you. But we really need to remember that the easiest thing that attackers can do is go to a website like Shodan, search for who on the internet is vulnerable to this type of an attack. And if you are the unlucky victim that has this service that's not been patched, 
well, you can be one click away from experiencing an attack from from patching, and, and from not, lack of patching, I should say. So, Gmark, if if this is the world we live in, how do we build an organization to defend against uh, patching? Well, you're not really defending against patching. You want to implement patching, so it's kind of defending against that. Well, part of the issue again comes down to how are we going to be able to go ahead and operate in our environment if we have issues with regard to these existing vulnerabilities. If we cross-reference the second item from the Essential 8 to the CIS control set, number three, continuous vulnerability management, suggesting that in that prioritized list of 20 controls, number three of 20 is keeping track of your vulnerabilities and managing that on a regular basis. Now, there's a little bit of a two-edged sword here, as anybody who has run an enterprise knows. You can apply patches as soon as they become available from the vendor, but what if the vendor patch breaks? It's not working correctly. And Microsoft has done amazingly great work over the last several years, but I've had three patches in the last two years that have broken systems. And so now you're stuck with a decision point that says, well, do I go ahead and patch right away so I close my window of vulnerability to potentially exploitable zero days or known attacks? Or do I wait a little bit to see how everybody else does? Now, we kind of joke that Patch Tuesday being the second Tuesday of every month is followed by Exploit Wednesday because people download the patches, reverse engineer them, figure out what the attack is, and then upload something to Metasploit so it's on the framework the following day. Now, if we go back to control one on application control from the Essential 8, we find out that if we are restricting or limiting what can run in our environment to only those essential items that are business related, we buy ourselves a little bit of time. A little bit of time to make sure that these patches are tested in our own test environment, uh, that we have not broken anything, and able to essentially mitigate that risk with a little bit of a compensating control while we wait to go ahead and patch the applica- or patch the operating system or the applications. Here's my recommendation. Stay alert. Read the bulletins. Subscribe to something that provides you with security alerts and make a determination as to whether or not the vulnerabilities that are being patched have a known exploit in the wild. Sometimes patches come out fixing problems that have not been exploited yet. Well, that's great and that's preemptive, but what if it breaks your system? You took down your enterprise for no good reason. However, if a system is actively exploited, as we found out in the press from the last couple of years and heard some pretty scary instances of things that say patch now, 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 you might be better off to start rolling out that patch sooner rather than later based upon the existence of known attacks or known exploit tools. So come up with a framework that allows you to make a decision. And if it comes down to something that you think that it could go one way or the other, get senior management involved a little bit, apprise them of the risk, and uh, get some buy-in on that decision so that you don't end up uh, limiting your career because you thought you were doing the right thing when, in fact, you just propagated 
an ineffective patch that just broke something. Yeah, I, I really like this advice. You know, we, we hear the phrase that software ages like milk, not like wine. So make sure you patch accordingly. And, and what I would say is, you know, perhaps there's an opportunity where we can talk to the CIOs of the organization and say, how do we make patching a core competency? And here's the reason why. There's more security researchers out there. There's more software being deployed. And, and because of that, we're likely to see more and more vulnerabilities in our software. And if we have more and more vulnerabilities in our software from all these commercial tools, then we need to be able to patch faster. Mm-hmm. And, and if that is something you can bring to the table and, and get the CIO on board with, I think you're going to be a really powerful CISO. Right. Excellent point. Well, what's next then on our essential aid? So number three comes in as configuring Microsoft Office macro settings to block macros from the internet and only allowing macros from trusted locations within your organization that may use something like a digitally signed or trusted certificate. And and here's the reason why. If you look at the easiest way to get ransomware in an organization, it's normally easier to trick a user than it is to find a vulnerability in a system. So, okay, I I find some developers that I think I can trick because their accounts are very visible in the social media profile. So I find some email addresses. I write some code in a Microsoft Office Excel file that works as a macro, and it's going to open up ports and do all sorts of malicious things. Well, I send it to them saying, hey, here's something I need you to review. Or I send it to a logistics department saying, here's an invoice that's past due. And these people, when they they see these documents, just click on the enable the macro setting without thinking twice. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, before you know it, you can have some major attacks in your environment. So, G. Mark, if this is the case, is there anything we can do versus just black it, uh, versus just saying no macros at all? Is there a way where there's some happy middle ground where we can you know, restrict macros in our environments? I don't know if it's a middle ground. It's probably about 90% of the way there. So essentially you want to be from the position of no macros for you as being the uh, requirement for users. But there's a lot of legitimate use for VBScript and other types of macro uh, scripting tools, particularly in things such as Excel. So let's think about it. The first thing you'd want to do in terms of a setting is restrict users who cannot change the macro security setting. So whatever restrictions we place on them, we don't want them to just go ahead and say, oh, you just can take those off. The second thing is, is then to decide what level of security do we want. At the lowest maturity level, but at least some maturity level, we can say, hey, we're going to allow to execute macros, but only after you prompt the user for approval. Now, the fallacy there is that your user is able to make an educated determination. What are they going to do? Step through the code and look at it line by line? Of course not. They're going to say, go. It's a file that says executive salaries.xls. Who's not going to want to click here to see what the boss makes? And that, of course, is how fishers try to get you going. So it'll prompt the user. Hey, are you sure you want to do a macro? Oh, yeah, I want to see that. Well, as you can see that is a little bit helpful, but only with really knowledgeable user. How about next level? At a higher level of maturity, we'll require office macros to be signed. Now there's a requirement to say, hey, somebody has 
indicated that this is originated from, if you will, a known entity, and we can block macros coming from the internet. That's great if you are never sending macro-enabled business tools back and forth with clients or third parties, which I don't really recommend doing anyway. However, there might be some situation where you're moving stuff back and forth that does require macros to run. And therefore, there needs to be an exception to policy or another way to get them in the door. We'll cover that in a moment. And then lastly, what you want to do is limit the macros to only those who come from trusted locations. And then um, we're going to limit those to personnel whose role is to vet and approve macros. And so now what we find then is you have not really the macro police, so to speak, but a place that if something does come in and a user believes that this macro-enabled document is in fact a legitimate business transaction tool, they can send it to some internal entity and say, hey, check this out for me. Is this any good? Should I be able to run this? Because beyond telling your clients, your customers, your partners, don't send me macros, but if they do, you don't want to disable the business. And it goes back to that kind of prime directive, the CISO shall never break the business. So now we've got different ways of doing it. Don't let users change their security settings. Allow them to execute, but only after being alerted. Limit them only to sign macros, or if you will, have a place where all the macros are tested and vetted and validated before they'll operate. Great advice, Gmark. Thank you. So the last one to round out how we prevent malware in our environment is what is known as user application hardening. And the example of this is a web browser, right? You can configure a web browser to run Flash, to you know have pop-ups and Java on the various options, or you can restrict and disable some of those features. And you can also apply certain types of extensions or plugins that might you know do additional blocking or limitations. And, and those sorts of aspects allow us to really prevent ways that malware would want to execute on our systems, right? The internet is, is really a wild and dangerous place in some aspects. So if our web browser is the first point of contact with that, hardening that is really a key focus for protecting our corporation. Yeah. And when you think about it, web browsers take their orders from external entities. If I'm sitting here at my desktop and I tell Google Chrome to go to a website, that website, when it gets downloaded, all those instructions, all that HTML, all the JavaScript, every code that's in there is being dictated to me from outside as compared to if I'm on the keyboard writing a document in Word or creating a spreadsheet in Excel where it's coming from my fingertips. Therefore, our browsers need to be some of the most heavily armored tools out there. And what we find then is that, for example, uh, Flash, which used to be Macromedia, and then Adobe got it, and it was one of those hot potatoes. They said, okay, fine. In 2021, Flash is no longer supported. Yet, it's still out there. And there are people who are saying, well, let me go get a deprecated version of a browser because I've got a business requirement to run it. Even though you've known for over two and a half years you need to get rid of Flash, there are some people who just don't take action. So what happens if you have a business requirement where someone says, but I've got to have flash or I can't get my job done. 
think about a sandbox browser. Give them something like a silo authenticate or the like, where they can go ahead and bring up a browser inside a sandbox where if it does something nasty, so what, who cares? Uh, the second thought then is it's more than just flash content, it's other tools, which happens to be active code. Now, when we talk about active code, your straightforward HTML hypertext markup language is really well, what they call a markup language. It's a description. It's a series of text commands to your browser saying, put some text here and make it this color and this size, and maybe it's this font, put an image here, here's the source of the image, and you can get a 1999 website. But today with active content, with being able to interact with it, check your bank balances, look at movies, et cetera, things have to move. And so that becomes that active code embedded in there. So we want to think about what do we want our web browsers to be able to do? One of the things that's become a big deal have been things such as advertisements from the web. Well, ads pay for things. And some sites, if they see you're using an ad blocker, are going to be able to pop up a little thing that says, hey, look, we only get paid by ads and we're giving this to you for free. So would you please release your ad blocker? Forbes did that a little over a year ago where they blocked content and got a lot of people up in arms when they said, wait a minute, I can't even read the thing because I got blocking on it. So they kind of relaxed a little bit and made it a request rather than a requirement. But you on your environments, what should we do? How about we block Flash? Sorry, no Flash. You want to do Flash, you have to go to a sandbox browser. What about web advertisements and things such as that? One of the things I've set up here, and actually with the help of my son, is a pie hole. It's a Raspberry Pi, which is basically using a list of known DNS locations to block all these third-party ads and cookies and things. Stuff never shows up anymore. The other interesting thing when we talk about cookies is that most of us understand cookies are simply text-based files that are recorded on a user's system, either persistent, meaning they're written to the hard drive, or non-persistent, they stay in memory until you shut down the browser. And there's been a lot of confusion for users about what's the difference between a first-party and a third-party cookie, mentioning briefly that if I go to something like Facebook and I get a cookie from facebook.com, that's first-party. It remembers who I am, my session ID, and that's helpful. But a third-party cookie might be something from an advertising firm or the like. Using little plugins is kind of interesting to see how many you get. On a personal level, I'd use something called Ghostery and found some sites have over 100 third-party cookies. What's going on in your endpoints? And so what we want to think about then is how do we disable many of these different things in our enterprise, allow our users to get the job done, but don't subject us to all this additional information coming in and the reason I mention that with regard to the ads is from time to time, there have been public sites that have been served with malvertising, basically advertising that was done by a third party. And then they substituted the legitimate ad with one that had an injection of malware. It pops up on the screen. It says, do you want to download uh, videoplayer.exe? Well, it's not really a video player, but the user goes, oh, okay. And off they go. So by blocking those, we are able to potentially ensure that the, the applications are hardened and not even giving the user a chance to make a mistake. 
I like it. Yeah, and, and I've seen a lot of these things in, in practice. So how do you create a simple virtual desktop in Citrix or a, another technology where a developer or a, a person who needs to use those restricted places can? And how do you use those extensions? I think that's really good feedback. So as we start to pivot a little bit, and focus on how to limit the, hard, the harm of a cybersecurity incident, we get a couple more good guidance. We hear about restricting administrative privileges as number five, and patching operating systems as number six, and multi-factor authentication as number seven. So let's dig into to number five to really limit the, the harm of an incident by restricting administrator privileges. First, we need to think about administrator privileges as the keys to the kingdom. If adversaries can gain access to these accounts, they really have the ability to do whatever they want. They can open up ports, they can write to any files or folders, they have the ability to copy data outside your network, and these really lead to very, very bad outcomes. So having the ability to really limit the number of admins and revalidate those privileges on a routine basis is really, really important. Gmark, is there anything we should do to try to accomplish this uh, lofty goal? Well, one of the things, Ross, is to recognize that not only is this part of the essential aid model, but it is control number four of 20 in the CIS control set, controlled use of administrative privilege. So if we think about, and I know I'm straying slightly off a topic off our essential eight, but these frameworks reinforce each other. They're not mutually exclusive. And if we look at the CIS controls, one, two, three, four, complete inventory of all hardware, complete inventory of all software, going ahead and doing continuous vulnerability management, and now controlled use of admin privileges, there's your Pareto principle right there. 20% of the controls gives you at least 80% of the value. Again, the essential eight here being very similar with respect to reducing or restricting admin privilege. So what are the things we can do? Number one, don't let end users have admin privilege, period. Can I have it? No, I need to add something. No, but we're locked down on COVID, I'm home. Now let me RDP in there for you, okay? Oh, we've got that shut down. And sorry, you can't run it. Or we'll ship you another box or something like that. You don't wanna implement such tight controls that you can't get the job done, but you never want to be reading an admin password to a user. Number two is you want to have a different administrator password for every endpoint. Oh my goodness, that's so complex. That's so much work. Yeah. Why? Because recent attacks over the last few years have used a great little tool called Mimikatz, which allows one to scavenge passwords in the clear, out of memory. And if an administrator had been on that machine anytime recently and a user downloads some attack device that checks memory and finds it, and then the attacker said, hey, I got a domain admin password. It works everywhere and across the enterprise. You have given them a ticket to the kingdom. So what you want to do then is isolate those so it only happens on individual machines. Number three, if you're going to have a Microsoft uh, tenant, okay, we use Azure uh, Cloud, for our domain admins, my domain admin account does not have an associated email address. In fact, my email account, the one that I email back and forth, is a regular user. If I ever want to do domain admin work, I have to log into a separate account 
do my domain work and log back out. It's the same thing that they say with regard to Linux. Don't just give root user ID to everybody. No one should be able to log in as root. You just do a sudo and you do something and then that gets logged to the individual operator's account so you know who did what. So validate privilege access to systems. Make sure that we have controls so privilege users don't do things such as read emails. Why? Because they could, like we saw before, download something that has an office macro in it and they're super users so that it can override anything or it has malicious content. So if you've ever logged in as a local user on a Microsoft um, server, and then you try to go ahead and pull up a web browser, it says, no, you're not supposed to be doing it. That's built into the operating system to tell you not to do that. Um, make sure then that we validate privilege access on a regular basis, do an audit. One of the things that Microsoft recommends, for example, is having no more than five global administrators in your environment. And uh, you might find out that you have more. Find a way to trim it down. Limit the number of entities that can do that and then be able to go ahead and potentially add technical controls in there that are going to limit what users can do at the administrative level and can create logging so that we have ways of knowing exactly what happened at the administrative privilege level. So I just want to give two practical tips for implementation. The first is most organizations usually have a help desk. Mm -hmm. Well, if the normal users are not admins, they can go to the help desk and have the, the help desk technicians install software directly. Mm -hmm. and, and that can be a really simple way to not have an admin, but have really easy access to installing things. Now, in, in times such as COVID, you know, having a physical help desk may be a little bit difficult. So the second way you see it is what's known as a PAM, a privileged access management tool. And there, there's tools like SailPoint or Beyond Trust, and, and the way they work is the following. Users have this software installed on their machine, and then if they need to install new software, they can get a one-time code, which grants them essentially like a pseudo one-time admin privilege to install something. Or you may have a, a master installer application that shows here's all of the applications you can install just by clicking a, a button and it's an approved app. Any of those types of approaches are really good ways where you've removed the need for administrative access on every single person, but still provided the flexibility of allowing users to get what they need when they need it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's only some great tool sets out there. So again, uh, check what's available. Again, it depends on the size of your enterprise. For smaller SMBs, may not need as sophisticated tools. But when you're numbering your systems in the thousands or more, absolutely is going to become a tremendous addition to your tool set to be able to effectively control your administrative privileges and yet get the job done. So if we look at number six on the list, which is patching operating systems, it's interesting because they already called out patching applications as number two, and now they're saying patch the OS. And they use the same uh, timeline to patch within 48 hours for any extreme risks or critical vulnerabilities that are found. 
and to not use unsupported versions because these types of software lead to compromises of systems, right? And, and you just think about it. Microsoft is going to make security enhancements all the time. They're also going to identify flaws and defects in their code, right? Here's something that causes your machine to get a blue screen of death. Well, we had a lot of users tell us, so we fixed that feature. Would you like to have better availability by running a more modern OS? We'll keep the patches coming, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Gmark, any other pro tips on patching operating systems? Well, when you look at operating systems, let's first of all start with one probably most of us are familiar with, which is going to be Windows. And Windows typically does major operating system updates on their semi-annual channel. So, for example, uh, if you're on their semi-annual channel, the current version is 20H2. Now, it used to be a number like 1803 or 1909. We're always figuring like, well, what does that mean? Well, that was year, year, and then month, month, with the semi-annual being either potentially March or April or September. And so the old version 1909 was 2019 September. Now, the current version, which came out in October of 2020, the most recent revision date is this month, uh, January of 2021, and their end of service is May of 2022. And for enterprise clients, it'll go to May of 2023. What's interesting is we take a look at Microsoft's release history and when they say, when do these become obsolete? And we find out that there may be some desire to say, well, it's working, it's stable, I don't want to update it. Well, vulnerabilities accumulate when you can't patch them. And something that is a weakness in version, let's say, 1803 is also may still have its same code in the 20H2. What does that mean? It means that if you allow your operating system to run for too long, the older versions, and you can't patch them anymore, then what occurs is these vulnerabilities represent something that someone discovers them in the newer version of the operating system. They get patched with the monthly updates or sometimes out of cycle patches if they're urgent, but you can't fix that. What about all of our Windows 7 systems or heaven forbid, if you still got XP running or something like that, it doesn't talk to the internet. Are you so sure? And that's where, as you had mentioned, Ross, the idea of Shodan comes in. Shodan.io is a great search engine that doesn't look for websites. It looks for banners when you connect to a system and you might find out that there are systems that you think are facing internally on a 192.168 or some other private address that also have a public address associated with it. And as a result, they're exposed. And so make a business determination to keep your operating systems up to date and patched. Ensure that you are not going to allow older versions to exist in your enterprise and recognize that these quality updates were going to run for either 18 or 30 months, depending upon uh, your lifecycle policy of the Windows 10 variant that you happen to have. Yeah. And, and I want to just point a little bit of the context here. There's this tool that came out called MassScan, and it was basically like Nmap on steroids. Oh, yeah. It was designed to scan the entire internet in less than five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it's scanning all these ports to see what's open. And it's also getting feedback to know, 
hey, here's some basic versions. So if you think of it is that easy to scan the internet to find bad versions of software, including your operating systems, and you're still running XP or Windows 7, where there's just easy exploits to find in public locations, you're going to have issues, especially if they're not behind a DMZ, not behind a firewall to really hide them from the big bad internet, right? So just something to think about. Now, as we're rounding out the last one here on limiting the harm of a cybersecurity incident, the Essential 8 touches on multi-factor authentication, commonly known as MFA. And they talk about using it for connections to your virtual private networks, your remote desktops, your secure shell protocols, and any types of access. And, and I would definitely include email access here. You don't want business email compromise. And so just having this is really the modern day password. And, and here's the reason why. There's probably someone who has a local sports team that they love within your organization. So let's just say it's the Dallas Cowboys. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pick a password that's easy to remember, something like 2021. So you may see a, a password that says Cowboys 2021 exclamation point as, as their password. And it gets through your password security policy because as an uppercase, it has numbers and has a symbol. Well, just because it meets your password complexity requirements doesn't mean it's a good password, right? There's a lot of very common ones that you can start guessing at. And if people can start flooding your sites, your emails to come in, and you don't have MFA, it's just a matter of time till they come in through, through an email or, or some other legitimate application. And so using stronger authentication that makes it harder for adversaries to access these systems is really, really key. And, and the amount of time to train someone to say, look at this six-digit PIN number in Authy or Google Authenticator is really low effort these days, and it's becoming much more common. So, G. Mark, what do you think about MFA, and is there any structured way we can apply this to organizations? Absolutely. It is a must. And I had a client last year who suffered business email compromise. They lost six figures because somebody had fallen for a fish, entered their credentials, thinking they were logging into Microsoft when it was, in fact, a lookalike site, coughed up their ID and their password. The attackers were then able to log in to this particular user's email account, and insert messages, chasing down existing ones. And the one that worked was, hey, we sent you an invoice a couple hours ago. They waited till after the operator had left and said, but we've changed your bank. Could you please update your banking information? And sure enough, the client paid someplace else. And when they didn't get their stuff, they called up, where's our stuff? Well, you didn't pay. Yes, we did. Here's the invoice. Here's the payment. Well, that's not our bank. <laughs> that's what you told us. Not our problem. So big issue. How would we have stopped that? Were a user to cough up an ID and password credential in a phishing exercise and the attacker gets it, what's going to happen? They're going to try to log in. And if the authenticator app is enabled or using Microsoft Authenticator, it sends a message to the cell phone that says approve or uh, deny the access to this account. Well, if you're sitting there at the dinner table and it says, hey, shall I approve your login right now? You're like, 
No, something's up. And it gives us a better defense. Number two is everything your administrators do needs to be MFA. There's no excuse. Don't say, well, it slows me down or whatever. You're an administrator. You're responsible for this. So that means third-party logins going into things such as if you use Cisco Umbrella for managing your DNS or using any other security tools, if they offer MFA, set it up for MFA. Make it an absolute requirement that nothing ever, ever, ever gets done unless you are on an MFA type of an account. And with respect to users, whether we use password tokens that are one-time, that is to say they generate OTPs, they change every 30 or 60 seconds, biometrics, which is pretty easy to bind to an individual, kind of hard to counterfeit that, although there is false positive rates, and one of these days I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, smart cards, um, mobile apps that they talked about, uh, maybe SMS messages, although we want to be careful about SMS because if it's really worth something, attackers will go ahead and potentially hijack your phone account by calling up your phone company and saying, hi, my name is Ross Young and I, I just got a new telephone. I'm trying to get it set up. Could you help me transfer my phone number to my new device? And you chat it up a little bit. And if they're really suspicious and they call you out, then hang up and call back again. But uh, it turns out that the best attack is to go ahead and, and hack the phone company by socially engineering them. Now your MFAs go to a different device with the same phone number, and you wonder where all your Bitcoin went or where all your secrets went. The other key tip that I would say here is when people see these malicious MFAs come in, do they know how to contact the security department to say, hey, somebody's trying to impersonate me? Okay, well, that's a good security incident to investigate. And, you know, yes, they should be clicking the disapprove that MFA request, mm -hmm. but making sure that they understand how to alert the security organization. So the last one here to kind of round out the essential eight is all about recovering data and system system availability. And what we mean by that is daily backups of new or changed data, ensuring that the software configuration settings are stored and retained for at least three months. And not only just storing and making the backups, but testing they actually work, whether it's on an annual basis or on a quarterly basis, you, you can be the judge of that. But you really need to make sure that if these are your financially significant applications, they work, they're protected. And if something happens, you have a way to restore business operations. Yep. Uh, the backups have kind of surfaced recently because of a lot of issues with regard to things such as ransomware. Hey, you've got ransomware. You've lost your files. Ha ha. We have backups. And that used to say curses foiled again. And you'd, you'd send the ransomware operator back to the drawing board. Different discussion for a different day that they've now turned to stealing your secrets and then threatening to disclose them, even though you have a backup. Uh, you don't pay them. They're going to disclose you and get you in other trouble. But again, separate subject. For the daily backups, why do we want to do that? Set it up so, for example, if you have Microsoft Enterprise users that they're connected to OneDrive. As they develop a document, as they develop an Excel spreadsheet, copies made out to the cloud. We had a user whose hard drive failed on them. We shipped them out a new hard drive with a new operating system. And basically, because we had had this backup set up, he got back everything except for the last 30 minutes or so of his work. Tremendous ability to recover and get right back where you went off. Be careful also with respect to backups. 
is that backups are engineered to protect against failure, not malice. And so, for example, right now, I've got a external hard drive connected to my device because I was getting ready to do a backup. But I don't want to leave it connected there. Why? Because we're ransomware to get to my machine. It's going to go right into the backup device and encrypt all the backups as well. So you want to store them either offline or in some way that cannot be overwritten. And keep them for a while. Keep several generations. Why? Because it turns out if something nasty gets in there and it ages for a while, it might not age through all the generations. Or if you have a bad media it might turn out that you can recover from another one. You might fall back a little bit farther, but at least you're back up and running. And then test them on a regular basis to make sure your backups work. I, I love those tips. I think those are really good. And, and, and here's a pro tip for the testing. Do you have something like a business impact analysis that says, hey, for each of my systems, how long can the business survive without it being running? Right. So let's say I'm a bank and this is my core banking application. I might be able to say I can survive for 48 hours with with this. And, and if that's the case, do a DR exercise where you're going to actually go back from backups. Can you do it in less than 48 hours? Mm -hmm. So now that we've had a chance to, to go over each of these eight, let's just do a quick uh, summary and, and review. There's an application control piece to prevent execution of malicious programs. We need to patch applications, the web browsers, the Office, the Java versions in our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We need to configure Microsoft Office macro settings to really limit the scope of our, our locations that we're allowing trust on and using digitally signed uh, certificates. We want to apply user application hardening. So we're blocking bad things from our environment or in our web browsers. We also want to restrict admin privileges, both to the OS and applications based on users' duties. We want to make sure that we have patched operating systems to limit those vulnerabilities as well. We're going to run multi-factor authentication to really uh, limit the harm of cybersecurity incidents by making sure attackers need a second key, if you will. And then last but not least, we need daily backups to ensure we can recover data and provide high system availability. So I think these essential eight are very, very powerful concepts and great safeguards for a company. G-Mark? Exactly. And uh, so, of course, I think we have our big three for our CISO tradecraft as we wrap up, and we want to invite our users to, number one, listen. Thank you for listening into what we're doing. Number two, follow. Consider following us, particularly on LinkedIn, so we can go ahead and let you know when we have updates. And number three, share. Let your peers, let your other fellow members know about this resource so we can make it available to more so we can help others as well. So listen, follow, share would be our big three, if you will, for today as well for our podcast. Perfect. Thank you everyone for listening. We love having you as our subscribers, our listeners. We wish you only the best and please share as, as G Mark mentioned and have a wonderful day. Take care.